Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are moving now into the continuation of the reading from the Tibetan Yoga, Principles of Yoga, Prerequisites of Yoga, Advice to the Yoga Students, as it was given in traditional Tibetan Yoga centuries ago already. And we were reading last time and commenting on the ten, the so-called ten useless things, the chapter number 17, which listed ten things which were defined as useless. Obviously, when you call something useless, the intention is to dismiss it and to tell to that practitioner, don't go there, don't waste your time on it, don't do it. As I said already last time, this is a bit of a sharp view, as you are going to see even with the first of them of today. Twists to it can be brought, like one can argue with some of these things, depending if you look at them from a tantric or non-tantric standpoint. But as I said, they reflect very much this spirit of the Tibetans, which was this strong Manipura, strong Ajna, and therefore being highly uncompromising on some things. Uh, these people, because life was so short in Tibet, they preferred to keep it simple, stupid. Like, they preferred to go straight and not to try to sort things out with... Uh, complications because there was no time for complications. Their style was in a certain way a Spartan style. And an example of it, a typical example of what I said before, will be the principle number six. The six of the ten useless things reads as follows. Seeing that when death comes, at least in three of those until now, there was death, death, death. Death of you, death of your siblings, death of your relatives, and therefore death was for them a very present force. When people were dying so young, generally speaking, then automatically death was one of the great teachers we today in the modern civilization, we try to hide death. Death has become inconvenient, politically incorrect. It's one of the taboo subjects in polite discussion in the society. Even when you have cancer, your doctor doesn't tell you that you have cancer and asks the family if they should tell you and all sorts of things like death is obviously some a very very provocative thing and the tibetans from death they extracted this spiritual aspiration the spiritual motivation seeing that when death comes one must relinquish even one's own home it is useless to devote life to the acquisition of worldly things while if you take this statement clearly, cleanly, in a straightforward way, that's perfectly true. 
and that's what all the Christian monks and nuns would have also said, <clears throat> and that is what most of the ashramites, people living in ashrams in India, they would have also said. Like again, seeing that when death comes, one must relinquish even one's own home, not to mention about a hundred thousand other things. Then they say, what use is there to devote your life to acquisition of worldly things? On the other hand, somebody looking at the world, at life, from another standpoint would say yes, but on the other hand, while life lasts, then why not have some fun? Because on the other hand, it's like you are going to a hotel and saying, say, saying, seeing that this is a hotel and tomorrow you are going to be gone out of it, why bother to take a room with a bed in it? You could sleep on a cot as well. You could sleep on a blanket on the floor. You could, if necessary. But the question is, is it necessary? So the key words in this sentence are the words, it is useless to devote life to the acquisition of worldly things. Like if the worldly things come, Easily, if they are there, then why not have it? Would you throw them out the window? Would you refuse them just because you are trying to be Spartan? Just because you are trying to be tough? Because here, we are having two different attitudes in different spiritualities. There would be people who would impose onto themselves a Spartan lifestyle. Even if it is given to you, you wouldn't sleep on in a good bed, you wouldn't have a good house. But wait a second, you did not devote life to acquiring goods. They came out of heaven. You didn't spend five minutes on getting those. So where is the problem? The problem is that those people saw the possession of worldly things as a trap. Like in the lecture which you receive in Agama about Aparigraha, that the possessions possess the possessor, that the owner is owned by his own possessions because of developing a bond, an emotional bond with those things and not being able to give them up. And of course, death is a cruel reminder of the fact that you can't take anything with you, that you are just postponing because you will have to give them up. But of course a person can say, look, if I have a bicycle, that bicycle helps me to transport faster and conveniently in this and that circumstance of life. If I have a car in the circumstances where I live, a car is really useful and it makes life more easy. Therefore, the question is, how far would you push this? See, this statement in ascetic types of environment is pushed to the limit, like sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Like you shouldn't have anything. Seeing that when you die, you have, when you die, you have to leave even your own house, 
don't devote any time to the acquisition of worldly things. But that is to live like a hippie, to live like a butterfly. That's like Saint Francis of Assisi, live like the birds of the sky. Because God is feeding the birds, God will feed you. And if you have to die, you will die in spite of your best efforts. You are going to provide food and money, and you are going to fall on a staircase and crack your skull open. Death is not in your hands, really. And that's why you shouldn't be afraid that you are going to disappear just because you don't have the means of subsistence. Therefore, I'm, and I'm not saying that this attitude is wrong. This attitude is right in the ascetic circles because their thing is do not develop any attachment by simply renouncing everything. If you don't have anything, then what are you going to get attached to? In the Tantric tradition, however, Swami Shivananda, for example, acquired a lot. They did not belong to him on paper, perhaps, but de facto, he was the absolute boss in that ashram, and everything was at his disposal. So Swami Shivananda built hospital, ashram, university, kitchen, library, this, that, colonies, and so on, and so on. And therefore you would say, when, you, when Swami Shivananda has to die, all that ashram belongs to someone else. Swami Shivananda has to let go even of his slippers. So why should Swami Shivananda bother with that? There are two answers to this. One, well, Swami Shivananda, once becoming enlightened, would do karma yoga, and he will not be touched by that anymore. Like you are not asking him that once he became enlightened, now he should absurdly cultivate poverty and deprivation just because he had to demonstrate a point to incredulous or people that had doubts or something like this. He had to do what he had to do. If he thought that people with leprosy needed a place to live and he wanted to do this as a charitable thing, then he did it. And thus Swami Shivana, Shivananda, at least for a while, he apparently owned a lot of things. And those things came from the selling of his books. They were coming from donations. They were coming from yoga courses. They were coming from all sorts of, sor of sources of income. And therefore, Swami Shivananda did do and own things but of course from a different perspective. Somebody could also say, the other answer is, not only saying, well, only Swami Shivananda could do that, because he had already reached the state of Samadhi, and he was already an enlightened person, and therefore he now was doing pure charity for the rest of his life. But for example, Mahatma Gandhi also did a lot of things, and it was never claimed during his life, that he was an enlightened being. Actually, both Swami Shivananda and Sri Aurobindo, who were two of the greatest living spiritualists of India at the time when Mahatma Gandhi was murdered, they claimed that Mahatma Gandhi had not been enlightened in his life, but he had reached Mrityu Mukta, liberation at the time of death, because he died the death of a martyr. He died in the line of duty like a martyr, and thus he was enlightened by grace, not by his yogic virtue, but by grace due to his karma yogic sacrifice. So what I'm trying to say here is 
even though people are not enlightened, they can still have the mentality that you can play a game. The problem is that very often people lie to themselves. And that's why, like the Tantric attitude as opposed to the Vedantin one, the Vedantic attitude is all this is a dream. Rip it off like the Matrix, you know, deny it. All this is a dream. You should be rabidly against this whole thing. And the Tantric people have said, it's true that this thing may be a dream in the meaning that it's not what it looks like. But while it lasts, since you are not recommending suicide, while the dream lasts, it could be fun. It doesn't need to be a nightmare. The Vedantics and others are on the opinion, transform this dream into a nightmare, so you should be sick and tired with it, so you should develop disgust and repulsion to it, and you should take refuge in the spiritual nature. And the Tantrics say a thing which sounds dangerous, because they said this dream can be a sweet dream. You don't need to turn it into a nightmare to love Shiva. To be able to think of your own emancipation, you don't need to torture yourself so that life should seem unbearable to you. But then the opponents of it can say, and what if you forget and you just stay with the fun, but you actually forgot the deeper purpose that it can be a fun dream if I entered to see a movie in a cinema hall and there is no way I'm going to get out of that cinema hall before two hours, at least I better choose a nice movie to watch if I'm doomed to stay two hours in the cinema hall. I could as well watch a nice movie. But the problem is, during that movie, not to forget to ask myself, who am I? Where am I? What is this reality? Like knowing that it is a movie and enjoying it as a movie, but not as an absolute reality, because it isn't, and I know it isn't. That's why the tantric attitude here is way more bold. The tantric attitude would say, seeing that when death comes, you must relinquish even your own home, which is a cold shower, remember that. It is useless to devote too much and to break morality and ethics and to debase yourself spiritually to the acquisition of worldly things. But if, for example, you have to go to two yoga classes, you are a yoga teacher, and you have a one yoga class in this part of town, and one yoga class in that part of town, there are two groups of eager people that are asking you, please teach us yoga, we want to learn about yoga. And this group here in point A, can come to yoga at 4 o'clock, and this group here in point B can come to yoga at 6.30. Not later than that, because then for them it gets too late. And then you say, I'm desolate, but I have a yoga group from 4 to 6, and from 6 o'clock I cannot be at your place at 6.30. Why? Because I'm a monk and I don't own a car. So, should you refuse to teach yoga to a group of people with aspiration? Or should you get yourself a bloody car and be able to go in two places quickly? 
be able to commute quickly for the sake of efficiency. To be more efficient, you could have a car. And then you simply can be a more efficient yoga teacher. And you can help spiritually more people in shorter time. So nobody says that acquiring a car is automatically a bad thing. But acquiring a car just to show off and to inflate your ego, that's a stupidity and it is completely useless. To acquire a car for going to a pub every evening and getting shit-faced, that is useless and even harmful and you should avoid that. But to, a, to take a car and with that car to do God's work, so to speak, there's nothing wrong about it. So here, the principle from karma yoga has to be brought into this dictum because here the Tibetans simplify it by saying it is useless to devote Lao to acquisition of worldly things. They, they mean people who are ready to sell their soul, people who are spending hours, days, months to acquire things which have no spiritual meaning or use and sometimes which are ridiculous. There are people who work hard and they would be ready to work two hours extra in their job to take to get 200 plus and with those 200 plus to buy some porcelain, some, some decorations for their house. Until when? Then you have to die. What if tomorrow you die? Wouldn't you be sorry that you spend the last two hours in the last but one day of your life just trying to buy some Chinese porcelain when you're actually about to die. Like things have to be put in the right per, into the right perspective. This is the meaning. This, this sentence, in my opinion, is simplified and it does not show the whole angle to the things since there are some possibilities which are not taken into account this is a little bit of a Manipura dismissive simplification. Like it is an injunction for the Buddhist monks of Tibet. Give up everything, don't own anything, you have your robe and your begging bowl, that's good enough. Consecrate yourself to prayer and meditation for the rest of your life. Don't bother about trying to accumulate things. In their environment may have been right, but spirituality on the face of this earth has been many things besides Tibetan yoga. And that is why this, in, this is in a certain way local and incomplete. Seven. Seeing that unfaithfulness to the spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence, it is useless to have entered yoga if one lived not a holy life. This is a very hidden, a very twisted statement and it contains many implicit things. Seeing that unfaithfulness to the spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence. That's a very powerful statement in, implied in those. Like, it is maybe better that you should not take any spiritual decision. Because then, you are not in danger 
to be unfaithful to your spiritual decision. For example, in Christianity, in Buddhism it's slightly different, but actually there are some degrees to it. The same thing is happening with sannyasa, diksha, in India. There has appeared in the last 50 years this great superficiality in which people make one step forward, one step backward. You know, like indecisive. Any Christian authority in a serious Christian tradition, in a serious Christian lineage, in a monastery, would tell automatically people, if you are not absolutely certain for the life of you that you are going to be able to abide by the monastic vows, the vows of a Christian monk or nun are the vows of poverty, chastity, brahmacharya, and obedience to the elders, to the hierarchy. If you are not sure that you will not do this for five years, but for 55 years from now, then don't do it. In Christian monasteries, in Indian sannyasa institution, and in the fundamental Buddhist tradition, once you have taken the vows, they are for life. You cannot take them back. Of course, if you beat your chest and say, who the heck dares to do anything against me? I am me. I am free. Of course you can. But the Tibetan superstition, if you want, the folklore, what the Tibetans knew about it, Read it here. Unfaithfulness to the spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence. It was, it, Jesus said about Judas, it would have been better for that man that betrays me not to have been born. Definitely we can say one thing. If Judas would have not met with Jesus at all, he would have been better off in the end of this adventure. Like sometimes going into the lion's mouth, you get badly bitten and mangled. It's the same with spirituality. Like people do sometimes in spirituality take vows. But if you take vows and then you break them, then you are unfaithful. The Jewish prophets expressed this by personifying God as an old, angry, jealous man. Like if you tell to God, I'm going to give myself to you, and then you take it back, then God gets pissed off. Of course, that's just a human thing. It's an anthropomorphic humanization of God. Because God is not jealous in any way. The explanation of this fact, as well as of this jealousy of God, is completely different. And I'm going to try to make you understand, <clears throat> in the following words, in the following minutes, what is happening. But it is a fact in Christianity, for example, 
I've heard very, very bad, bitter opinions. If anybody went to a monastery and became a monk or a nun, and then 20 years later, they recanted. Like everybody thought that those people will have a very bad karma, that they will be accursed, that they will have real bad fallout due to that. Like they shouldn't have gone in there. The same thing is with sannyasa. If you take sannyasa, you are not supposed to come back. It's not supposed to take sannyasa for 20 years for fun and then to become a householder or a kiosk owner or God knows what. It's for life. That is why there was so much revolt in India when Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later called Osho Rajneesh, Osho, he started giving a, a phony sannyasa to the people. He, the pressure was so much that eventually they called it Neo-Sannyasa. Like, okay, it's not sannyasa which you guys knew about. It's something which I invented, I, Rajneesh, in the 80s or 70s, and it's called Neo-Sannyasa, so leave us alone. Because in India, there was an uproar. You have some Svadistanistic Farangs coming to Pune, dressing in orange and taking some malas, and saying now they are sporting some Ma Ananda something names, and then 10 years later, they will just be working in an office of Shell Oil back to their country, or having two children in a suburban house in New England or some. That's unacceptable from the standpoint of Indian spirituality. Those people are falling off a grace. Like you invoke a grace upon you when you take that vow. And then when you are stepping out of it, how are you going to give back that grace which was given to you? How are you rewarding the divine overflow which you invoked by saying, now I shall for life consecrate myself to the spiritual quest and I'm burning my ships. I'm burning my bridges behind me. There is no way back for me. And then there comes a grace. Everybody who commits themselves so deadly gets an important grace. And then you say, just kidding. I just wanted the grace. Now I'm taking my word back. But there will be a cost for that. And that cost, let's make it clear from the beginning. It's not coming from an angry God that exacts vengeance, like you cheated God. You cheated yourself because the reminiscence of this will not be in the divine consciousness, because the divine consciousness is perfect. And in something perfect, everything is equal and equanimous. The reminiscence of this will be left in your own subconscious mind. There is part of your own soul, part of your own subconscious mind which knows what you did and that part won't forgive you. All those of you who reach to the second level of Agama, read once more very carefully the laws of the mind. Because already in the second level of Agama, 
the great secret is written there in the laws of the mind. It says the mind is the one which condemns you and the mind is the one which absolves you. All the condemnation and all the absolution is not coming from Purusha, from the transcendent spirit. Everything is coming from the mind and the mind is not the spirit. The mind is not Atman. Therefore, the mind has different levels of depth and there is a level of your own mind where you blame yourself. It's exactly like somebody who says, oh, I killed somebody, but the guy was a bastard and he deserved to die anyway. Then how do you explain that people still get karma when they do that? Because if somebody kills somebody and says, I'm not guilty, but in the moment when you die and your superficial ego is peeled off, in that moment you are face to face with your witness and consciousness, with something inside you which is like a totally impartial judge. And that consciousness inside you says, both you and I, I who am you and you who are me, both you and I know that actually you have done this, this has been done. Therefore, somebody must take the fall for it and you are the one, since you are the one who did it. Oh, the fact that you didn't feel guilty about it, that adds to the thing, because that makes you be a callous, uh, a very, very merciless person. So that makes it worse, not better, the fact that you thought you are going to get away with it. It shows you are also very unconscious at a conscious level, that you are very unaware and you are actually abusing in many, many ways. That is why here we are having a thing. Every time when people take religious vows, spiritual decisions, and being then unfaithful to them, it gets worse than before. Not because God wants revenge, because your soul wants revenge on yourself. Your soul wants punishment. Your soul simply says, I've done something which I shouldn't have done. I think I have to bite the dust a little bit for it. And that is why it is exactly like a perfectionism in our own soul. Something in our mind is very aware of some principles, is very perfectionistic about some principles, and it won't budge on those. And that is why there are parts of our deep subconscious mind, our latent potential, which we cannot influence by just simply saying, ah, oh, no, I don't want to feel guilty about it. You don't want, but in the moment when you will die and you will be at what the Christian saints call the judgment day, which is nothing else but the unfolding of your life in front of your eyes, and this merciless, objective judge, like the guardian angel, looking at your life and simply measuring it in front of your eyes, in that moment, suddenly you will appear guilty in spite of your best actions. <clears throat> because you were trying not to be guilty at a conscious level, which is at a superficial level. 
you just manage. You go to prison, as in so many movies, you know, when you go into a prison and you talk to the inmates in the prison, nobody is guilty. Everybody is there because of a mistake. The society is guilty. Everybody is guilty. They are not guilty. They are there by a terrible injustice. Do you think that those people actually are not guilty? Do you think that when they die, their karmic thing and their own objective witness, this witnessing consciousness, will not say with a very clear and detached voice, actually, it was deserved, actually, this is what happened. So, therefore, there is a very big danger in taking spiritual decisions and then giving them up, being unfaithful to them. That is why I am very cautious about when people try to do this. How many people who are sannyasis did you hear about in Agama? If I, the guru, have taken sannyasa, then some people would have also wanted to become sannyasis. And after they have done 10 years of yoga, they told me, Swami, I want to take sannyasa. Did I make somebody a sannyasi? No. Why? Simply because I don't want to destroy them in the process. I want to make sure that if anybody will ever take sannyasa in this school, it will be for life and without regret. There has to be no looking back at that point and it has to be for life because it's not that you are going to make fun of the sannyasa you are going to make fun of yourself if you don't do that you are going to take it back and your subconscious mind will condemn you and if your mind condemns you you stand condemned it's as simple as that you don't need a vengeful god there is enough revenge exacted by your own sense of guilt. And people say, I would like to put my sense of guilt to sleep. It's not possible. There exists a healthy sense of guilt, which generates karma, which generates the right judgment, which generates compensation. And that is why one has to take this into account. <coughs> It's happening all the time that people are falling in some enthusiastic extremes and then they take it back. I see people coming to yoga enthusiastically and not even three, four years later, all their enthusiasm has melted like butter and is gone. And then in the beginning, I had pupils who came and told me, Swami, is there a way to pay the yoga courses for 10 years in advance? This is my house. I'm going to be here. You'll never get rid of me when you teach such a yoga and such things. Believe me, next year those people will not around. So it can be that we are actually teaching some very nice things in the first month and second level and then we become disappointingly crappy. Or there can be the other explanation of the fact that those people had an enthusiasm which was like a paper fire. You make a bunch of paper and put it on fire, it blazes for 20 seconds and then it's out. But for yoga, for spirituality, you need to have a perseverance sometimes for a lifetime. 
Sometimes this is the test. That's why the Jews said that God is angry and jealous. Like God wants to see, let me see. If I don't give you a state of Samadhi for 40 years, <clears throat> like with Totapuri, the guru of Ramakrishna, will you still worship me? Or will you be afraid that you have wasted your life trying to reach something which does not exist and you will go away, thus demonstrating that your aspiration was to a certain extent fake, that it was to a certain extent superficial. You had not really taken the decision, I'm going to die into this. I'm going to give a whole lifetime, not a whole lifetime without the last five years. Not a whole lifetime, but it's actually only 20 years. A whole lifetime till the last second of my life, I'm going to give it to this great attempt. When that has been tested, then the Divine Consciousness answers immediately. Then you don't need to wait for 40 years. Because the Divine Consciousness is you, is in your heart, and your heart is completely open. There is no way of faking anything at the level of the pure consciousness, at the level of this pure level of conscience. And that is why here there is a very, very deep issue. That's why I prefer that people go slowly and they don't get elated. With Last autumn, I taught some very important things to the advanced teachings. And someone from the advanced teachings come and said, Swami, you have a ritual for creating spiritual sons and daughters. There is a ritual of the gurus of Kashmir for becoming the spiritual son, like for being accepted as the family of the guru, like, you know, the flesh and blood of the guru. Like, and they said, he, he even gathered a, another person into this, and then he said, oh, I want this. And you wouldn't believe this person was coming at the end of every day of session and was telling me, what about the spiritual son's ritual? Because I told them, I'm in the middle of a 27-day or 21-day retreat, and I hardly have the time to put together that ritual, which, by the way, I haven't done ever for anybody, simply because I was not asked to. And this guy was all fire, all on fire. No, like, I am 100% devoted to you, to this, this is what I do. I, you know, make the ritual, I am your spiritual son. And not because I wanted to test him, really, although I knew that this was a paper fire. But just because I did not have the time, I did not let myself pushed into that place, because I simply didn't. And I said, wait, wait, I'll do it. Then I said, okay, I'll go in the autumn time, and then I'll have some time and prepare it. In January, it was not the case anymore. I haven't been asked anymore. On the contrary, the person was a little bit pissed off at me because I was too distant, I was too busy, you know, like the person was even emotionally hurt because I did not answer enthusiastically this kind of thing that you are asking to be spiritual son in September and in December or January you are already pissed off and at, take a distance that, of course, I was very wise that I didn't do that ritual in September because it was not based on the real thing. My intuition was correct then. 
And thus, what I'm saying is, do not, neither for yourselves nor for others, it's better not to get carried into spiritual decisions, into vows, which then you are going to break. It's much better to take a tapas for six months, and after six months to see what will you do next, then any one of you should commit yourselves for a tapas for a whole life and then screw it after 10 years. People change. Many of you are still very young. And when I was very young, I would have been unable to tell you what I tell you now. As the years of your lives pass, there's a lot of stuff changing inside of you, emotionally, mentally, due to various factors. Some of them are changing because of your yoga practice. You do excellent yoga practice and some things are opening in you and modifying and so on. Others, other things are changing simply because the clock is ticking and the DNA and the brain are changing in certain ways. Your hormones are changing with age and everything. And 20 years from now, you are not going to be mentally and emotionally the same person which you are today. And then, if you will change your mind, it would be a painful thing. And the Tibetans have said it clearly. Unfaithfulness to the spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence. That can be understood in two ways. One, after death, because when you die, your own conscience becomes your own judge and says you've kind of screwed up in this life so you are going to be a hungry ghost for the next 60 years just to pay a bit through the nose and to kind of learn a lesson not to throw yourself so much forward stupidly no so you go into the miserable states of existence these are the six lokas of the tibetan system of afterlife which we study in the Art of Dying workshops, in which the human being is basically after death can go to higher or lower realms, and some of the lower realms are miserable states of existence. Not everybody after death is happy and luminous, far from that. And it can be interpreted even in this life, Seeing that unfaithfulness to the spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence, not after death. Even 20 years later, you'll go to miserable state. Why? Because your subconscious mind starts blaming you. You are saucy, shameless, impudent, and somebody says you've done this, you know, like, like Judas, you know, you've betrayed your guru or something. And you say, it doesn't matter. I haven't done anything wrong. I did what I thought was right. Like on the outside, you can be shameless. You can be impudent. And then in deep in your subconscious mind, when you fall asleep in your dreams, you find yourself in the middle of your dreams crying. You are crying. Like the guilt is there. There are people who suffer from insomnia because they are afraid to fall asleep and to face that reality. Because there be dragons on the other side. The demons are waiting for you with the pitchforks to take care of you. No? And people then don't fall asleep. And miserable states of existence 
can exist in this life. You can see people that in the 1960s they went to India and they took sannyasa or God knows what, and then 20 years later they were screwed up and finished spiritually, and then what came was miserable states of existence. Falling down of the immune system, cancer, misery, poverty, unhappiness, emotional ruin, relationship fiasco, and all sorts of other things, because those people are not punished by a jealous, angry God. They are simply punished by a righteous subconscious mind, which simply says, now it's right. You said you are going into a Christian monastery, and you become the bride of Jesus. Here is the ring to remind you, right? You have a ring on your finger which says, now you are married to Jesus, if you are a woman. And then 20 years later, you are getting porked by some dude. <laughs> what kind of relationship do you have with Jesus then? Like what, you know, it's like, what do you make out of Jesus? Oh, oh, Jesus is compassionate. He will forgive me. Jesus will. But you will not. Your deeper sense of righteousness will become your worst enemy. Your worst enemy would be inside your chest, inside your brain. And your worst enemy will eat you from within. That is why it is good that human beings think twice. Here in spirituality, it doesn't work with childish enthusiasms, with teenage enthusiasm. If you go to a monastery, like there is a beautiful Audrey Hepburn movie called Story of a Nun or something like this. We have, we have it in the collection of the school. Probably you'll see it in one of the spiritual movie nights. We have such a wonderful collection of very significant movies. And in that movie, it's the regime of a woman that is to become a nun. And there are many, many, many years of novitiate and of toughness. And actually for the novices, for the postulants, the toughness is much more than for the, for the actual nuns. They push them to the hilt to see if they will not break down. They don't make you a nun. They make you a nun in five years. But three years you are a novice, and as a novice you are not supposed to say more than ten words per day. And if you change your mind during those three years, everybody is relieved. Like we avoided a great tragedy. We avoided a great mistake that somebody should say, I am a nun of Christ, and then take their word back. That should not happen. That should happen as seldom as possible. Th that is why, please remember the religions, for example, the Tibetan gurus, when in the 60s and the 70s the Westerners went to the Tibetan lamas who were coming from Tibet, they were refugees in India and elsewhere in the world, and then they were eager, and they were eager to, for recognition, for support. So there was a, a few years where the Tibetan community was very confused. 
And then the Westerners received them with arms open and they said, Oh, Tibetan yogis, come on, come here. We want you. We want to learn yoga. But it, they were hippies. This was flower power people. Vata. Vatas, Vadistana type of spiritualists, which were very chaotic and very superficial. They loved uh, their marijuana and they thought that was yoga. <laughs> and then those people... You know, the, then the Tibetan gurus, they immediately fell back on the next line of defense. And what started is like, you do not give to a novice teachings of yoga before they do many, many, many years of preparatory things. First, you have to start by doing 100,000 prostrations. In the Tibetan yoga workshop a few years ago, I made people do just a hundred prostrations to have a little bit of a taste of what 100,000 prostrations would mean. Before a hundred thousand prostrations, they wouldn't give you any mantra, any teaching, any nothing. First of all, show me that you are not a vata dosha hippie and you didn't come just to dabble three days here asking of me to give you the secret mantras and the secret teachings. If you do the 100,000 prostrations which the most diligent people working hours every day will do in six months, then we can start seeing if you really are ready for something. I remember when I was in Dharamsala at some point, I met an old a Westerner who had been a monk in the Tibet at that time, 10 years ago for 17 years. And when I told him that I was initiated in the yogas of Naropa and that I could teach them the pova and the tumo and this, he said, it's incredible, he said, because I have been a Tibetan monk. I am a monk. He, had the, he was fully ordained. I've been a Tibetan monk for 17 years. And in 17 years, I heard only twice and I couldn't catch it that the six yogas of Naropas were being taught by a teacher somewhere. So, so seldom it was. Like when you go to such environments, people do rituals, blessings, ceremonies, all sorts of things which belong to the lowest rung of yoga, to the yoga of the ritual, which is for the householders. Like you are not given the esoteric part. When one of our old pupils, one of our senior teachers came and met me first in Rishikesh years ago, he said, I thought Swami Vivekananda was crazy to give such things to people so openly because nobody does that. Like for many of you, it seems that the fact that we teach you Laya Yoga or we teach you about chakras and Kundalini and this, it's the way it ought to be. That's not the traditional way. It's already a great, great act of confidence and sometimes uh, it works well and sometimes it doesn't work well. Therefore, seeing that unfaithfulness to spiritual decisions, you know what? Better don't use big words. Don't make yourself to be liars and hypocrites. Better have patience. Don't take vows which then you'll break. A broken vow is worse if you didn't take any vow. Hold your horses and take vows only when you feel like. It's like with marriage. 
people just get infatuated with each other and they get married. I've seen in the school people have been with each other for two months and then they proposed. But in the old days a man and a woman were supposed to be engaged for a couple of years and then decide if they are really fit to get married. Like that's also a vow. You take a vow to get married and to be together for life and then ten years later when the oxytocin in your brain wears out and when you have no more horniness for the other person when you have become sexually non-infatuated, then your vows are gone to the dogs, then it was better not to have taken vows. It was better just to live without any vows, because those vows were a lie. They were a hypocrisy. Thus, seeing that unfaithfulness to spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence, that's a given. That's the starting point. It doesn't say that sometimes or maybe. It says taking into account that unfaithfulness will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence. Meditate deeply on this one, dear ones. Please. It, if, it's very difficult to take it back. It's very difficult to take it back. I know that some of you have impulsiveness and enthusiasm. But try to think in the long run. I'm telling you that, you know, every man and every woman around their 40s, they go through what psychologists call their midlife crisis. And men and women, most of them, emerge from their midlife crisis very different than they were before. So you can say now, me, yoga, forever. And then you are going to have your midlife crisis and you are going to say, me, yoga, fuck it. <laughs> and it's going to be the same person, you. Then don't take any decision unless you feel that you are grounded in your spirit and that you can hold this unshakable thing for all your life. If you are just based on some superficial emotions and thoughts, I can promise you, those will change. Everything changes. So, seeing that unfaithfulness to spiritual decision will go into miserable states of existence, it is useless to have entered yoga if one lived not a holy life. Like, why even learn yoga? Of course, today we tell you, you can learn yoga for your daily life. And that's fine. Like, Udhyana Banda can help your digestive system even 30 years from now, and even if you are not really interested in yoga, you are suffering from some indigestion or constipation 30 years from now, and you have stopped really doing yoga, and you are not even a vegetarian anymore, but doing a little bit of Nauli Kriya will still save the day. So it's not that yoga cannot be used for that, but you see the Tibetans, were integrist fanatics. They lived 37 years. Life was short and you had to do things. And there was no time for dabbling and playing games. And they say it is useless to have entered yoga. Like if for them, if you have entered yoga, it's something different. We cannot say that those of you who are in the first level of Agama 
or even in the second level of Agama, or even in the third level of Agama, you have entered yoga. You are still dabbling. You are still dipping your baby toe into yoga. You don't really know if you have entered into yoga. Some of you, not even some of you have become teachers of yoga, don't know exactly if you have entered yoga by the by Tibetan standards. Like enter, like you have become a monk into a Christian monastery. Enter to stay. Enter to be. That's why in this school we teach in an open style from the very beginning and we give to the people freedom of options and stuff like that. For example, Muhammad the prophet, he was a Tibetan style of person in many ways because the Quran says, if you convert to Islam, if you become a Muslim, and then 20 years later you recant, you should be killed. It's one of the politically incorrect, it's one of the non-democratic, unconstitutional things of Islam. Anybody who recants Islam, the, the Islamic fanatics say you can kill that person because the Quran says that person should be killed. You are Muslim for life. If you don't feel like, then don't enter the Islamic religion. Because if you entered and then you want to step out, then the more narrow-minded people, the more a la lettre people there, they can stone you to death. Like, why isn't it accepted? Because they consider it like then you go to hell. Because you are going to condemn yourself for having done that and then broken your own spiritual decisions. It's better not to break your spiritual decision. That is why there is a dialogue into different Christian churches about baptism. The Orthodox Eastern Christian Church baptizes children immediately after they are born. And the Catholic Church, and from the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, they have introduced another system. They do a minimalistic baptism when the child is born. So if the child dies in the childhood, its soul will not go into hell. But then they do another ceremony, which, for example, the Russian Orthodox Church doesn't have, which is called confirmation, which is the second part of the baptism, which is done only after the age of 10 or something, so that the child can have a conscious decision. Like now that you are 12 years old, do you want to be with Jesus? Then you have confirmation and the anointing with oil and all the rest, like now you are a Christian through your own decision. Because if you are made a Christian when you are 40 days old, then when you get older, you say, I don't want to be a Christian. It's my parents who baptized me. I was not interested in that. Nobody asked me for permission or if I was interested in that. I was baptized automatically into that and it was not my thing. In a similar way, there are Jewish people who want to be uncircumcised. There is a surgery of decircumcision where they stitch back the skin of your foreskin because you said, why did you cut my foreskin when I was 10 days old? Screw you. 
You didn't ask me if I want to have my foreskin cut, put my foreskin back. Which is again a bit ridiculous, but it shows this fact that sometimes spiritual decisions are a very important thing and a very difficult thing to take and therefore people should think carefully. So seeing that unfaithfulness to the spiritual decisions will result in one's going to the miserable states of existence. Some people even become vegetarian due to spiritual, due to a spiritual decision. Like, I could eat fish because the Japanese people are eating fish and they are having one of the longest lifespans on planet Earth. So apparently it's not fish which is going to destroy your health. But I don't want to eat fish because I don't want to participate to the killing of any being for me. I will stay, I will stop at the vegetables level and some other things maybe. You know, but I'll not go to the place where killing is done for me. Some people want to become vegetarian as a manifestation of their moral, ethical, and therefore spiritual things. And then 30 years later, somebody has convinced them that if you don't eat meat, you don't have proteins, you don't have B12 vitamin, you don't have God knows what, uh, you know, omega-3 oils or something like this, and then you should eat meat. And people start eating meat, betraying their spiritual decision from 30 years ago, and then they are surprised that their state of health becomes worse. In spite of the fact that now they eat food which was supposed to be healthier, with omega-3 and with this, but actually it goes down, because the omega-3 is plus, and the punishment from their own subconscious mind is minus. And they thought they could cope with that, but they cannot. Because usually you cannot reach to those levels of the subconscious mind. You have to go and be hypnotized. You have to become an expert into self-suggestion and self-hypnosis to be able to deactivate things at such a deep level of your own subconscious mind. And therefore, people are living with guilt. Guilt is so deep in our being, like I, I see it all the time about Tantra. As soon as I start talking about sexual Tantra and sexual things, on the face of most people there appears the mask of guilt. There is guilt. And people say we are born in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know. It's like, who is guilty? We are such, uh, you know, modern people. That's not true. The collective subconscious mind is full of guilt and everybody is with their feet up to here in guilt, in that dark swamp of guilt. And people think that they don't have it. I remember from my youth I had been doing transfiguration, meditation, consecration, all the tantric things for three years and more and I still was discovering traces of guilt when doing some things, like I was doing things which I, I thought were perfectly right, perfectly clean, perfectly spiritual, perfectly noble, and then the ugly snake of guilt would come and knock at my door and says, but are you sure, uh, isn't it, but what about this, you know? Like the devil was still there, the demon was still there knocking at the door because the guilt 
is belonging, is as a collective thing. Try to realize, biologists speak about the hundred monkey effect, that if a monkey does something and the hundred monkeys do something, then all, but if there are a hundred million people who feel guilt about sex, there are many more, but if there are a hundred million, then they will, this is the hundred monkey effect in the negative way. It also works in the negative way. <clears throat> That's why all the religious bigotry and this is like a lodestone that we have to carry to our necks. We carry, unfortunately, the burden of all the bigotic and other people that think about it. And that's why, for example, every time when you do tantric yoga and others, you spend 10% of your energy into washing that dirt. You get constantly recontaminated by the weeds of the humanity. <coughs> you should take a space shuttle and go on one of the moons, live in one, one of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn and break away from the shit of this planet and simply say, I don't want to be one of those people anymore <coughs> and dwell into their mental garbage. But as long as you are a citizen of planet Earth, you are sharing the same blood, the same oxygen, the same water, the same air with everybody. And therefore, um, you have to take into account the fact that many, many such pitfalls exist. So unfaithfulness to spiritual decisions results in one's going to miserable states of existence. Be warned. Therefore, it is useless to have entered yoga if one lived not a holy life. <coughs> it means it is useless to try to get the big initiations of yoga, to go into the esoteric parts of yoga, and not to give it a shot to enlightenment. That is very puritanic, very purist. Here, the Tibetans are pushing it again to the hilt. They are going again and saying, you know, if you want to do yoga, you should do yoga only for nirvana. As you know, in Agama Yoga, we think that yoga can be used for many other things, but then don't do the mistakes of taking the wrong vows, of taking the wrong decisions. You want to learn yoga for your daily life, learn yoga for your daily life and be happy and don't feel guilty. The problem is, when you have some spiritual decisions, when you live according, you take some vows, and then you break those vows. Taking vows and breaking them is exactly like you take a tapas, and then you break that tapas. It's worse than if you didn't take any tapas. Exactly as we tell you, don't take a tapas unless you are 99% sure you are going to fulfill it. We also tell you, do not take spiritual vows if you are not sure you are going to fulfill them. Number eight, very practical, referring again to death and to the art of dying. To have heard and thought about the doctrine and not practiced it and acquired spiritual powers to assist you at the moment of death is useless. To have heard and thought about the doctrine, like you hear about yoga, like I'm giving you an example of yoga as it comes to us from our Tibetan brothers and sisters. 
you have heard about yoga, Tibetan version here. And probably you will go home and talk with each other or in the restaurant or sleep on it or come with some questions about it. So not only that you've heard about it, but you also thought about it. You chewed on it for a while. You digested it, at least to some extent. To have heard and thought about it and not practiced it, then why here? It is useless if you come and hear about it and you not practice it. It's useless. That's why I say, you are in Kopangan, an exception made of those of you that have very distinct karma yoga here in the, in the community. All the others of you don't have anything to do here. If you are in Kopangan to do yoga, to be part of Agama, and you don't manage to find at least two hours every day to practice, you should think twice, like, why are you here? Did you come to take baths and be on coconut beaches? Then at least admit that. I did not come for yoga. I'm here for the sunshine and for the sea. Then go to the sunshine and the sea. Don't try to ride on two horses at the same time. It's not going to work. To have heard and thought about the doctrine. Okay, the Buddhist doctrine as illustrated in yoga. The doctrine with a capital D. To have heard and thought about the doctrine and not practiced it. And now it's interesting. Not practiced it and acquired spiritual powers to assist you at the moment of death. Like the whole yoga, here is the purpose, you know, it's one way of looking at it. Like you practiced it to acquire a certain spiritual power which will help you in the moment of death. The whole life is about preparing for death. Because if you die in a shitty way, you have screwed up. It's like shooting, as I tell in the art of dying. Dying, it's like shooting an arrow from a bow. Or if you want a more modern image, like shooting, shooting a bullet from a gun. In the moment when you shot it, you can't do anything anymore to fix it afterwards. Death is a one shot. So when you die, you have to be trained enough so that you shoot it right. That's why when pupils of the school ask me, Swami support us that we do a group of practice of pova, which is one of the fundamental teachings from the art of dying, I agreed to it. Because that's what it is. Tibetans will say, you do yoga, you do yoga. And you say, oh, look, I'm doing yoga. And look how beautiful my skin looks. It's going to be eaten by the worms, dear people. You are not doing yoga for your skin to look nice. You are doing yoga so that when you die, you can go in Brahmarandra and go to Devachan, go to the spiritual worlds or to full enlightenment. Then the practice of yoga has yielded fruit. Then it has given full result. If not, yeah, you have done yoga and you have obtained some things but not enough. Therefore, here as you can see the Tibetans, how they manage to put the dot on the eye to mark what is important. To have heard about the doctrine, thought about the doctrine and not practiced it and acquired spiritual powers to assist you at the moment of death is useless. It's true, they are a bit radical. Even Krishna would not go as far. Krishna who was a very powerful spirit 
Krishna tells to Arjuna, O Arjuna, on this path of yoga, every effort is useful. No effort is ever wasted. Like, even if you have done, even if your aspiration is that you came for one season to Agama, and you did six months of yoga here in Agama, and you didn't get pissed off at me or at Agama, you are just lukewarm in your aspirations, and you say, you know, it was a period of my youth, I was interested, Agama is really good, I did some yoga, I got something, I know about the chakras, I can do Nauli Kriya, I know about this, I know about that, surely I'm going to do all my life a little bit here and there, and you go. Those six months are exactly like you lay a brick on a wall, it's like you are a mason and build a wall. You laid two bricks in this life, then in the next life you'll not need to lay them again. They are there from your previous life. God knows how many bricks like this have you already put on your edifice in your previous lives already. That's why many of you are not at the beginning in your yoga practice. Many of you feel that some things you've got them. And even some of these spiritual determinations and tests and attitudes, you feel them. While some of you are scared about some of this stuff and say, whoa, you know, this guy is really mean business. Some of you say, yes, yes, that's exactly how I also think, because you've done that. Maybe some of you have been Tibetan yogis 200 years ago, and now you are back here to continue, because you haven't reached the full, you didn't build the roof of your house at that time, you just built a part of the wall, and now you are about to finish that palace that you are building in your soul. And that is why um, this is a bit extreme, like give it a shot, you know, don't play, don't dabble, go fanatically, die for it. But of course, one like Krishna can also be extremely wise and say, on this path, no effort is ever wasted. You do a little, it's good. It's not everything. Don't imagine that if you do a little, you have finished building the inner castle. But at least you have built a wall to it, and hopefully in the next life you'll continue with more to that. That's why in the philosophy of the East, evolution, even when you take the spiritual path, it is seen as taking many, many lifetimes. And very few people either have the madness, the determination, or they are at such an advanced stage of building that inner castle that they are exactly in the life where they will finalize it. And then like Buddha, they will finalize it. But Buddha is not the result of one life. He himself said it. Buddha have witnessed 10,000 lifetimes. And if you are going to have the curiosity to read the Jataka stories, which are the 10,000 lifetimes of Buddha, then you are going to see that in some of those lifetimes, Buddha practiced meditation, spirituality, yoga. Like Buddha did not have one spiritual life in 10,000. And the other 9,999 were empty. No, he had other lifetimes where he attacked the spiritual mountain, where he climbed the spiritual mountain. But he didn't make it. But he made something. At least he made a part of it. And then every time 
every time. That's why Buddha was so ripe. How many people haven't seen a dead man, an old man, a sick man, and they remained indifferent. They said, yeah, well, shit happens. This is how life is. No? But Buddha, when he saw those three, he went hysterical. He couldn't sleep anymore. He went totally neurotic. And he said it can't be, because he was already 99% enlightened. He was a bodhisattva. He was almost ripe for the picking. And then this was the last life. It was just the last drop. It was the drop that spilled the glass for Buddha. That is why, and that is why you can take this Tibetan statement with a pinch of salt. Because, of course, they would want that everybody should have the determination. Like, if I start yoga now, I'm going to finish it in this lifetime. That would be beautiful also. And I really hope that some of you get exactly that. You get into yoga, you do it, you reach full spiritual realization. May it be so for as many of you as possible in this lifetime. But even if it doesn't happen, it doesn't mean you've lost everything, because what is done is done in spirituality, and then it continues. So they simply hear the fact that they say it's useless. It's again a very perfectionistic thing, because you cannot say that somebody that heard about yoga and thought about it, but did not practice it for much enough and did not acquire the pova power for death, then it's useless. It's not useless. It's useless in the meaning that we, you didn't win the lottery. You played the lottery and you didn't win the lottery. Yeah, but you've increased your chances to win it next time. So it's not completely useless. It's again here the Tibetans are a little bit too rough. Like they are like, there is a Roman, a Latin dictum. I think it was said by Caesar or one of their famous uh, personalities because somebody said the famous word out nihil out Caesar, which means either nothing or emperor. Like, I would not accept, like people said, you know, you could die. He was trying to become emperor. And people cautioned him, it's not going to be easy, you're risking your life. And he said, either nothing or emperor. Like, either I die trying or I become emperor. I cannot stand the life of mediocrity. No mediocrity for me. I prefer to die trying. But I'm going to be nothing or emperor. This is the same with Buddha. Buddha said, either I go in the forest and lose everything, or I'm going to find that answer. And find he did, fortunately. <clears throat> Remember once more here, in this one, how much emphasis they place on being able in the moment of death. It is one of the reasons for which in Agama, we have the special workshops on the art of dying and now even practices because it is one of the illustrations of the effects of yoga. Tibetan yogis, that's what they boil it down to. They don't say to have heard about and thought about the doctrine and not practiced it and acquired healing powers in your hands. They don't say and not practiced it and acquired clairvoyance and remote viewing. 
No. They say, and not having not practiced it, and acquired spiritual powers to assist you at the moment of death. Like that's where you verify that indeed your spiritual practice was worth something. Nine, it is useless to have lived even for a very long time with a spiritual preceptor, with a guru, if one be lacking in humility and devotion and thus be unable to develop spiritually. Some people die of thirst on the shore of a lake. There are many people who lived around Ramana Maharishi and they did not get what Ramana Maharishi got. There were people who lived around Swami Shivananda and they badmouthed him. There were people who lived around Ramakrishna and they did not get his spirituality. We get to hear by reading literature, you know, Ramakrishna was always assisted by a nephew called Hridai. And Hridai was having a very privileged position because in India the family positions are strong and this guy was always elbowing everybody else and saying, stand aside, I am the nephew of Mr. Ramakrishna here. I am the one who is here. And even when Ramakrishna was falling in Samadhi, the one who was holding him not to fall down, not to drop down dead, was Hridai. There are photos with Ramakrishna in Samadhi and Hridai holding him. Like Hridai was his right hand. Hridai was the man there. Hridai was, did inhale more farts of Ramakrishna than anybody else in this world. And guess what? Hridai was an asshole. There is a, an incredible paragraph somewhere about it where it says that Hridai was such a pestilence of a man and because he was manipuristic and confident and you know he was feeding like people were coming to see Ramakrishna but they couldn't see Ramakrishna, they would meet with Hridai and then Hridai would be like, um, oh you want to see my uncle Ramakrishna? Mm, um, let's see if you are good enough for that, you know? Hridai was just inflating his ego like a jerk and he was playing arbiter and he was such a nasty like he was he was trying to manipulate everybody he was not a nice person and he behaved so miserably to Ramakrishna himself that Ramakrishna apparently mentioned in a circumstance that Hridai at some point brought him to the brink of suicide Ramakrishna brought to have thoughts of suicide by a nephew who was behaving like an asshole. And Ramakrishna being an angel, never had the heart of turning him around and kicking him in the ass and say, fly out of my ashram, I never want to see your face again, you idiot, you know? Like Ramakrishna was like God's lamb. He was humble. And this guy was such a swine that he was taking advantage of the angel-like personality of Ramakrishna and of the devotion and humility of everybody around and he was actually a jerk. This is what it is. Hridai breathed the farts of Ramakrishna but he didn't get enlightened. He was on the contrary. We have a lot of references which say that he was an unpleasant, selfish person.
And Tibetan yoga says, it is useless to have lived even for a very long time with a spiritual preceptor if one be lacking in humility and devotion and thus be unable to develop spiritually. There have been many people who after Ramana Maharishi died because Ramana Maharishi could not be asked, Ramana, is it true that that person is your disciple and has reached some spiritual realization? After Ramana Maharishi died, please remember, read a search in Secret India from your bibliography. Paul Brunton has been there in the time of Ramana Maharishi and has followed Ramana Maharishi till his death, 1953 or something. And Paul Brunton says it clearly. At the death of Ramana Maharishi, Ramana left a few trustees to take care of the ashram. And when he was asked, is there any disciple that can sit in your chair and do what you do? Ramana Maharishi said, alas, no. So there was no spiritual leader of the Ramana ashram in Tiruvannamalai because Ramana Maharishi didn't consider anybody enlightened and ready to do that. There was a council of trustees. Today, there are at least 10 so-called self-enlightened masters throughout India and the world who claim that they all come from Ramana Maharishi. None of them had the personal confirmation of Ramana Maharishi. So there are many, many people who stayed in the shadow and they, are, they also come and say, I have spent 20 years with Osho. I have spent 20 years with Ramana Maharishi. I have known personally Paramahamsa Yogananda. Doesn't make anybody a saint. It doesn't. The fact that you have been in the entourage of a spiritual person can, could mean something, but very often it doesn't. Here is the confirmation. It is useless to have lived even for a very long time with a spiritual preceptor if one be lacking in humility and devotion and thus be unable to develop spiritually. What? So you can stay with a good teacher. And how do you develop spiritually? Tibetan yoga, remember, these people were doing yoga. They were doing tumo. They were doing pova. Like the, we are talking about technical yogis, powerful Manipura, Ajna people. These were not small dizzy goats or something, you know, little lambs or something. They were the tough ones. And how do you develop spiritually staying in the presence of a teacher? If one be lacking in humility and devotion and thus be unable to develop spiritually. You are coming here to learn Nauli Kriya and Laya Yoga. If you are lacking in humility and devotion, you will stay, you know, it's, that will become your Wikipedia. You will have a Wikipedia at home where you will look it up and say, this is Laya Yoga, this is Nauli Kriya. That's not going to be spiritual development. Spiritual development is obtained by having humility and devotion. I don't need that. We are in a westernized style of yoga teaching. We teach you like in high school. There is a registration office. 
you've got a serial number, you can pay with PayPal. It's very cool. It's like high school. You come, most of our teachers are punctual, they come to the minute, the yoga classes are, the halls are clean, we have audio video material, we even have skeletons to show you how, no, it's everything, it's nice, it's a good school. But if you are lacking in humility and devotion, you are going home like an encyclopedia, not like a spiritually developed people. I don't need your humility and devotion. You are going and paying there, you know. Swami is famous that he has a Rolls Royce in Bangkok or something, you know. It's like, I'm, it's okay. You want to be disrespectful or uh, not humble or non-devoted, it's fine. New generations of pupils are coming every month. It's like a factory. We produce yogis on a mass production unit here. But it's for you. That's why I'm holding such a lecture, because in this environment you might forget something which when you lived with a guru in ancient India or Tibet, it was there, very visible, because everybody did it. People who lived with their guru in Tibet, when they lived with their guru, there are two categories. Those that had humbleness and devotion, and those were like sponges that were getting filled up by the wisdom of their teacher, and people who are like Hridai, the nephew of Ramakrishna, and who are having in mind something else, not spirituality, and therefore those people were not there. In the Zen monasteries of Japan, they have the parable of the empty cup, that if you try to pour tea in a full cup, there is no place for a single drop of tea, that you have to empty your cup, before you come to a spiritual teacher. That is why sometimes things are difficult, but remember, because people say, oh Swami, of course you would like many of your pupils to be humble, because then they will come and kiss your big toe. I don't need that. I feel awkward if you want to kiss my big toe, because I'm thinking maybe I didn't wash it enough today, and it's not hygienical enough for you. I don't, it puts me in an embarrassing situation. It's not about me, it's about you. If you are going into a spiritual environment and you do not cultivate your humbleness and devotion, then that spirituality will not stick to you. And it's a pity. Then you are just acquiring data. You are paying 4,000 baht per month and getting a booklet and a lot of audio-video material plus discourses by Swami. That's not enough for spiritual development, and that is why it is important. It's not the time which, you know, people say, oh, we heard that you have people who have been with you for 10 years. It's not the years which matter. Hridai was with Ramakrishna for 20 years or more, and it didn't help him, poor thing. Therefore, it's not about the years which you spend it's about how you spend. Remember, Vivekananda spent much less with Ramakrishna than Hridai, the very nephew of Ramakrishna. And Vivekananda became a fully enlightened being, and Hridai is only a caricatural character, is only an anecdotal character. Today, he is not an enlightened being or a great yogi or anything.
And finally, to conclude, number 10, seeing that all existing and apparent phenomena, by phenomena they mean manifestation, prakriti, are ever transient, changing, and unstable. And more especially, that the worldly life affords neither reality nor permanent gain. Like whatever you gain in this life, you can't take it with you when you die, so it's not a permanent gain. It's a transient thing. It is useless to have devoted oneself to the profitless doings of this world rather than to the seeking of the divine wisdom. It's ultimative. This is the ultimative truth of spirituality. Down here, everything changes. People say, but you can do something. Yes, because you do karma yoga. You do seva, like Swami Shivananda did, like Buddha did. But they did not something for accumulating something for themselves. They did something for growing the merit. They did something for the spiritual purpose. Seeing that all existing and apparent phenomena are ever transient, changing, and unstable. That is what the Greek philosopher said when he said, Pantarei, everything flows. Democritus, or one of those I forgot who said this, said, Pantarei, everything flows. There, the water is not the same under the bridge ever. There's new water, a lot of water goes under the same bridge. Therefore, everything flows, nothing stays. There is no status quo. Nothing will stay as it was. The Roman Empire did not last. The, I don't know which other empire did not last. Today's powers that be will not last. There is nothing which lasts forever. Everything flows. Everything changes. So given that everything is changing and unstable, and more especially that the worldly life affords neither reality nor permanent gain. Like what is reality? A mother is having a child and then the child according to the principles in psychology to the famous Oedipus com complex the child is having sexual thoughts about his mother and that's because that mother and that child in a previous life they were lovers. It's a totally abnormal pathology. You would consider it if you would be a woman and you would be in a secret way, you wouldn't even dare to confess it to yourself and you would have some erotic attraction to your own child, to your own male child, you'd go and put your head under cold water. You'd go and slap yourself in the mirror. You'd go to the psychiatrist and say, I'm crazy, I'm pathological. Some, you know, but it's not pathological if you have been lovers in a previous life. But if somebody tells you this, you spit them in the face. You, you get angry. You know, because the worldly life affords not reality. What reality is? Now like this, tomorrow like something else, in another life like something else. There's no reality. These are just masks. These are just transient moments. These are just appearances. Like Dalai Lama said, like the present Dalai Lama said, no, life is like crossing a bridge. It can take 80 years to cross that bridge, but still you are crossing a bridge. So life is 
hardly a reality. We don't come from here and definitely the final outcome of our spiritual evolution is not here. Have you ever seen on this planet somebody who had been 10,000 years around and now is the Lord of the universe? If there is somebody who has become the Lord of the solar system or the King of Shambhala or something, they are not here in front of you physically. Therefore, wherever they are, all the people that have achieved some major things in the last 5,000 years of history on this earth, they are not around here. Therefore, it's not here that the finale is. The final banquet, the final dinner is not happening here. The celebration is not here. You don't see anybody, one single one here, which celebrates final victory. Therefore, it means that there is something after, unless you are ready to accept that there is nothing after, and then you have to live your life according to your belief. Therefore, the worldly life affords neither reality nor permanent gain. There is no permanent gain. If you create a beautiful body, that beautiful body is not a permanent gain. You do some bad actions and make some people unhappy, and in the next life you are born and then you fall ill with polio. And then where is your lovely body from your previous life? It's not there. That is why, remember that they are right. It's painful, but it's right. Everything which is said, all are existing and apparent phenomena, and they are ever transient, changing, unstable. And the world, the worldly life affords neither reality nor permanent gain. We are living in a dream where we don't know what is what. Then, given all that, it is useless to have devoted oneself to the profitless doing of this world rather than the seeking of divine wisdom. It's exactly like you'd be a very bad investor, you know. Somebody would say, don't invest money into that. Because nothing comes ever out of that. It's like you are investing money in some utopian, in some virtual world on the computer. You live one of these computer double reality games, whatever it's called, where you have a virtual character and you move through a world, and you even put thousands of dollars in there, thousands of your dollars from here, you make them somehow go there. Somebody would say, are you nuts? Are you ever going to get something back from there? Like nothing comes, why would we invest into something? It's a poor investment. Invest in your soul. Invest in what can give something. In, in a universe which is so transient, changing and unstable, in a, in a life where there is no permanent gain and even the reality is a distorted concept, then wouldn't it be logical? But this is the problem. People have pain listening to these things. These things are painful for the person who is not spiritually determined and ready to cut mercilessly, ready to go fanatic, ready to go, you know, in a totally determined way. People find it painful because people are svadistanistic. They are making compromises. They are jellyfishes. They are, you know, they want to try to cheat a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I know that God can see through your soul. 
but I wonder if you can't cheat anyway a little bit, you know? Like, people would cheat even God if they could, you know? They would keep something for themselves. They would always try something here and there. And then remember, there are people who would not cheat. And it's not about God. In the Vira groups, and it's a Vira thing, but still everybody can learn this Vira in spirituality, there is the story, it's a story which I learned as a child, not in yoga, about a famous Latin hero, Roman hero, who was called Mucius Scevola. He was Scevola in Latin means the left-handed man. He was called Mucius the left-handed man. So he had been a hero with the left hand also. Why? Because he was lacking the right hand, the right arm, and he was left-handed, therefore. How did it happen? The Roman Empire, it was the later years, this guy was sort of a gladiator uh, character, like the character from the movie Gladiator, that's what I meant. And the Roman Empire was already pressed by barbarian invasions. And this guy was sent with the Roman legions to defend under one such barbarian onslaught, and he took the decision to make a commando action, because the barbarians were many, and they were outnumbered, and he simply said, I and a group of the most powerful, we are going to sneak in the barbarian camp. The barbarians are not organized like the Romans. The Romans had surroundings, moats, guards, and everything. The barbarians were drinking and so on and preparing for battle, living in tents, but they were much more chaotic. So the guy simply planned rightly. He said, we are going to sneak in the barbarian camp, and I'm going to kill the leader. And when you decapitate that crowd, then they are going to run like chicken. You know, they are not going to be able to fight with us without the leader, who is the real charismatic Manipura person. So he went into barbarian camp by night, but the leader of that was a smart guy, and he was changing the tent constantly. He was never sleeping in the same tent. So Muchus Cevola went into his tent and killed some servant. And then alarm was rung, and he got caught. And then he got caught, and he got brought in front of the barbarian leader, who, of course, was planning to make an example of him, like the cowardly fucking Romans. They sent some assassination team to us. Well, I'm going to make an example of them, so nobody dares to even think about that again. And then I'm going to march on Rome. And when they brought him in front, this guy on Manipura, he got him and he said, what have you got to say for yourself? And Muchus Cevola looked him right in the eyes and he said, you think that you want to punish me? But he said, you don't need to punish me because I am a Roman and I deserve my punishment because I have failed. I failed to kill you and I don't need you to punish me for that. And he took his right arm and he put it into a flame. They were having torches and he put his right arm into the torch flame. And he looked the guy in the eyes while his arm was getting burned to ashes. And he burned his right arm for life. He remained left-handed. And you know what? The barbarian leader took off his virtual hat and he said, you are free. You can go. Like, indeed, what will I punish more on a person like this? That's why it's the same in spirituality. Some people say, I'm not going to dabble onto half measures. 
No, I'm not going to try to, you know, ride on two horses and cheat and so on. There is a proverb, a Bulgarian proverb in your papers, in your first month level papers, which says if you want to drown yourself, don't torture yourself with shallow water. Like when you want to drown, don't just ask for attention. Go where the water is deep and God, die for God's sake, you know? Like die from the first attempt. No, don't make uh, ridiculous attempts to drown yourself. It's the same with yoga, some people would say. You want to do spirituality? Why would you make ridiculous attempts to spirituality? Do it. Do it 110%. Put your hand into the flame and go. No, like be gone. Be a hero. Don't let, you don't need anybody to push you. You don't need your guru to come and say, come, come, practice more. You need your guru to come and say, take the hand out of the flame. It's fine. You know, it's like you are practicing too much. Chill out a little bit, you know. That should be my function as a teacher, to cool you down and to say, whoa, whoa, you know, I'm impressed. You know, take it easy. No? That would be fantastic, you know, somebody who comes with that spirit and says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it 110%. <clears throat> That's the Tibetan spirit. Don't think that the Tibetans had only perfect ones. In the Tibetan ashrams, monasteries, groups of practitioners, there were many jerks, there were many lazies, there were many envious ones, there were many phony ones, there were many, you should... When you read Tibetan mystical literature, Drukpa Kunlei, the Bhutanese yogi who studied in Tibet, he was called the divine madman, he makes so much fun of what was happening in the monasteries, of the fact that the, the monks said that they were celibate, and they were not going to women, but they were just gay with each other, and all sorts of things which were happening in the Tibetan monasteries, and Drukpa Kunlei, like being a madman, being com he was reciting dismissive poems where he made fun of all this. Like, don't think, in Christian monasteries, in Buddhist monasteries, in Tibetan monasteries, in Indian ashrams, 90% of the people who are there, they shouldn't really be there. They don't belong there. There are people who somehow found free food and free house in some place, and they just shelter themselves there. And those people are sometimes exactly the ones who go against. They are the people who gossip, who are backstabbing, who are bad-mouthing, who are doing all the shitty things precisely because they are not spiritually transformed and because they are not having a high standard. I remember, you know, we, even here, we are, gossip, we are dealing so much with gossip and lies and so on. I don't remember. I heard recently another preposterous one. I don't even remember it. I, if I'll remember, I'll tell you. No, I even asked them, how can people invent such things? You know, it's like, who would be so mentally disturbed as to invent such things? But anyway, the point is, I remember a spiritual organization in India, and the guru of that organization had made a rule. When you come to talk to me, he said, you never talk about someone else. You come to talk to me only about you. 
That's the only object of having an interview with me. If you come to me and say, see, I have to tell you what Walter did, then get out. We don't speak about that. Like you come to me, you talk about you. But people haven't done anything in the last two months. It would be normal that they come and say, I did six hours of Laya Yoga per day, and yesterday I went off the floor. I started levitating. What's your opinion about that, Guruji? But people come and say, you know what Walter did? Walter pissed her against the wind. Do you think it's correct? That is the job of Walter to come and ask me about his pissing against the wind, not yours. To a guru, you come and speak about your successes and insuccesses in the spiritual practice. That would be normal. Again, I'm not, I'm not making this rule here because there are a lot of other things. People do karma yoga. There are a lot, but that was a very exclusive place where people were doing spiritual practice constantly. They were in a retreat, in a permanent retreat. And then the rule was you don't talk about someone else. Talk about yourself if you have something to say about yourself. If not, go back and practice more until you've got something to say about yourself. This is a very important thing. I'm not going to continue. It's late already. Let's remain in silence for a couple of minutes, absorbing the wisdom of Tibetan yogis, sometimes exaggerate, extreme, fanatic, intolerant almost about some things, very uncompromising, but still functioning like a cold shower and telling us some real strong truths that we need to hear at least once in our lifetimes about ourselves and about spiritual practice. And that will do. With this we have finished. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining us into the satsang. With this we have finished for tonight.